0: Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash i
1: There's supposed to be pros here.
0: I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. The golf
2: Exposed
0: Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to season two of the Golf Exposed podcast. We're very excited to make our triumphant Backstreet Boys-like return. I, at best, I'm, I'm probably Howie, but I'll call myself Brian. We are here with the Nick Carter of the Golf Exposed podcast, and that would be John Brown of not only Brown Golf Management, but Golf Back. John, a lot of things have happened in the industry since our little hiatus, and we're gonna sort of reset the show, talk about what's coming up for season two, and talk about the what's been going on in your industry. So welcome back.
1: It is great to be back, excited for season two here, and really to dive deeper into all the topics we started with on season
0: one. So as always, we're going to get into the down and dirty, nitty gritty of uh, the golf industry. Um, We're going to have some great guests this upcoming season. We are going to delve into some betting as we did last season, but a little bit of a different format.
1: Yes. We're going to do our foundational show, which is going to be our core information about golf business, golf news, golf interviews. we got some great guests lined up. Really excited to deliver that foundational show of knowledge. But we're also going to do our special tournament edition, which we'll talk about the upcoming PGA Tour Tournament. Bryce will be back on the show. We'll be putting in our bets. We'll be tracking our efforts related to betting, so you'll know who's a winner, who's a loser. A little bit of fun with that segment. Two segments. We're going to bring you one segment uh, of the foundational show once every two weeks, one segment of the tournament edition once every two weeks, and we'll run for eight uh, consecutive weeks starting This week, week one, the week of the PGA Championship.
0: It's exciting stuff and exciting time. And I think at some point when we get our um, bearings under us and get our sea legs for season two, we'll go to some video-based content as well. And uh, a lot of things have been going on. Speaking of content, with not only the Brown Golf Management website, um, but the Golf Pack website has really taken um, an uptick in – just a great new look and overall aesthetic. It was nice before, but your team's really been working hard on that. And I think that is something we should mention because the feedback's been great on Golfback. We had a lot of good testimonials already. And if you haven't checked out golfbacksolutions.com, I highly urge you to do so. Um, what was kind of the inspiration with revamping the website?
1: Just to make the picture clear about what uh, we can deliver to golf course owners, you know, we're rooted in doing the right thing for golf course owners and operators. And I think Brent Miller and Uh, Really, it was Brett Miller's project. You know, our CIO just did an unbelievable job of putting that information together. Bryce Voightson added some uh, some additional info. And we got everything on there from case studies to videos to testimonials to great articles to our barter calculator. I mean, it's about as transparent as it gets with information. You can really learn a lot. So golfbacksolutions.com is definitely a site worth checking out.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of great content there. And of course, browngolfmanagement.com. You can listen to this show there. Of course, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the major ones coming soon to YouTube. So um, be on the lookout for that. Well, before we jump into our first guest of the season, who we're very excited to have, um, let's just talk quickly about what's been going on in the industry in broad strokes what have you seen since the last time we've been on the show
1: brown golf's portfolio has uh, a a portfolio of clubs that are in local markets and then a portfolio of clubs that are in travel markets the local markets are just as strong. I haven't seen the downtick in rounds that maybe we were anticipating once uh, all the other opportunities uh, for time uh, were open, whether it's youth sports or restaurants or whatever it may be. So the golf rounds are staying strong in the local markets, which is great to see. It seems like we have a couple, we have some more legs as it relates to keeping that traction to play. Uh, the travel markets started to bounce back in early April in our – Uh, Hilton Head, our Piners, our Orlando market, finally the first month that they all operated ahead of budget. They continue to be operating ahead of where our typical May is right now. So I do think we've got some wind behind our back with folks very antsy to get out. You know, they're vaccinated now. They're ready to start to travel a little bit, experience golf again, which is the greatest outdoor game on the planet. And and I think we are going to see a little bit of a runway in front of us of rounds continuing to tick ahead of of their typical averages for may june july and august
0: clearly you've never played outdoor pickleball but (laughs) golf is a great game in its own right all right well hey we have an we have a great opportunity to talk to someone with some great insight. Who are you inviting on the show as our first guest, our maiden voyage into season two? Who do we have?
1: Well, with the industry news that came out, you know there was a lot of information as it relates to private equity firms and them purchasing two of the larger golf companies in the marketplace. This all happened in the last six weeks between season one and season two. And I'm going, going to talk about these transactions from a golf perspective, but we really needed a big wig, a big corporate wig that could help us really understand sort of what private equity firms are, what they do, you know, how they interact with businesses in general, and maybe give us a little bit more insight as to, you know, why a transaction like this might Take place, so we're going to invite in Jordan Brackett, who's the vice president and controller with uh, Salinas Corporation. We'll let him explain exactly what he does, uh, but we're going to talk about these two big purchases, and we're going to get some input from somebody who actually has some familiarity with how private equity companies work, and just try to put a a, a bow on it. But the two companies that were sold was. One was Club Car, you know, top three golf cart maker uh, domestically here in the United States was sold to a company called Platinum Equity. And the other was TaylorMade. I think everybody knows TaylorMade Golf Club uh, Company uh, that was sold to a, I believe it was a South Korean private equity firm called Centroid Investment Partners. Big purchases. I wonder what it means for the industry. I wonder what it means for those companies. So let's invite in Jordan Brackett. Jordan, are you there? Yeah, I am. Thanks for the next nice introduction. glad to be here. Great, Jordan. Why don't you give us a little background on uh, what you do currently today, and then we can dive into a little bit of what these transactions might mean.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm the vice president controller at Felinus, and Felinus is a uh, global chemicals manufacturing company. So I won't bore you with all the different kinds of chemicals that we that we produce. Um, but I will say every time you use a paper towel and wipe your face or blow your nose, or say in the bathroom, you're using our chemicals. So that's that's probably the best way that I can put it. And in my role, I run the entire global accounting function. So I have teams all over the world uh, and manage um, our finances and have direct interaction with uh, our private equity firm um, who runs us.
1: And how large is your company, just to give us some idea of scale?
2: Yeah, we're uh, $3 billion in sales.
1: $3 billion with a B, right?
2: $3, 3 billion in sales.
1: Wow. Okay. So you know about big business in the corporate world, I guess.
2: Yeah, we're, we're, we're global in every region. And we have all the complexities that you can imagine with dealing with different different parts of the world, for
1: sure. So when we hear the word private equity, we probably think one thing. What do you think? What does it mean to you when you hear private equity invested in ABC companies?
2: Synergies and lean lean workforce
1: lean workforce so yeah private equity world examining uh companies like club car TaylorMade, made you have any idea what you know maybe they thought was uh you know a positive of investing in those types of organizations
2: yeah so without going much into the details cuz they're private equity and they can only they're only going to show certain parts of the deal but my guess is you know a company like platinum they probably have some sort of um Company footprint that is in the vehicle space, whether it be smaller vehicles or so on, that they that they are probably going to look at Club Car and say, okay, uh, in order to in order to achieve a return on this investment, we need. Let's take a look at what companies we already have that we can combine with Club Car. What they also probably are looking at is the workforce that Club Car has, and and one thing that private equity does amongst a lot of things is. They really, they really looked at your workforce and find out how you can, how they can squeeze you know, more profits out of having a lean but more efficient um, workforce. And, and by that, John, what I mean is, they, honestly, they, they do a lot of things that, that Brown Golf does today where they'll take a look at you know, accounting functions and back office functions and make sure that um, they're as centralized as they can possibly be. They'll look at uh, different, you know, supply points and distribution centers, and and see whether or not that they're if they're, um, you know, overloaded in in one section of the country or not, and um, probably come up with with new ways to to be a little bit more efficient from their supply points. And then beyond that, they'll look at they'll look at overhead costs. I mean, that's just a, that's just the nature of the beast with private equity. They want to look at overhead costs, and they want to. They want to look at spans and layers of management control. And if you've got 30 managers with one employee, my guess is you'll have one manager with 30 employees. Maybe not to that degree, but you kind of get the concept. So they'll look at spans and layers as part of it as well.
0: I don't know if I've ever prefaced you with this, but I'm sort of a layman on the show coming from a background outside of the golf industry. I'm learning as I go here, and it's fascinating to me. There's a lot of correlation with the marketing world and the business world and um, things that I'm involved in. So it seems like every other week on the show um, for the past few months, we've been talking about some major acquisition or merger that's happening or a company buys another one. So when I see this, I think there's probably some pros and cons to both, right? From your perspective, do you think that there's positive or negative implications when companies acquire other companies?
2: I think that's a great question. So, I mean, you're always going to have uh, bad connotations when it comes to private equity. I can tell you that private equity rarely loses money on a deal. So what they're what they're looking at is how can we try best make this investment pay for itself. So if if I'm on Club Car's side, um, you know I'm I'm looking this looking at this as as a good thing because you're you're going to have an opportunity to um, one stay private. And become operationally efficient, um, and improve uh, impr- improve your workforce. Um, and and two, you have an opportunity to um, not only on the efficiency side, but my guess is they're going to go for you know taking more market share. So you know I, again, Jordan, I don't I'm not in the prop industry, but I would I would venture to guess that it's it could be a fragmented industry where there's a lot of small players out there. Um, and you know, Club Car could use this as an opportunity to um you know, go over and, and, and take over other similar similar companies. And it doesn't have to be in the cost industry. It could be other small, mid sized vehicle type entities um, that uh, that they can combine forces with. So there is a lot, there is a lot of pros. Um, but you're right. I mean when you when you hear private equity, you hear synergies and you hear cost cutting and so on. Um, you know that's just that's just the nature of what they do, uh, but they're very good at at that sort of business model. Um, and if you're a part of it, um, you know it can be it can be a really good ride.
0: John, am I crazy or does it has this been happening more and more often in recent memory, or is it is your industry always been that way?
1: I think it's been happening on a much larger scale more recently. And I wonder, from Jordan's perspective, when we see these transactions. That are continuing to happen at a large scale, at least in the golf space. Do you think that signifies a negative or a positive for the industry in general? I think it's a positive because I think Platinum is only going to do this,
2: and uh, I'm, the Korean firm—the name is escaping me at the moment—but they're they're only going to do this if they can if they think that they can make money, right? And they probably see Club Car under the old owners. I think it was Ingersoll Rand, who who it just didn't seem to you know it, it doesn't seem like just in the news. That it, it fit their profile. Um, so from a golf industry perspective, you know, platinum is looking at this and saying, uh, we believe in in a company, we believe in this industry. And um, you know, like I said, they're they're not in the business of losing money. So I, I think it's a I think it's a it's a it's a good sign for the industry in general.
1: Well, that's good as someone who's in the industry and works with both of these companies. I wonder if I'm the CEO of Titleist or of Callaway how I feel about you know a big transaction of TaylorMade you said you know take market share I think uh that directly would correlate to Titleist and Callaway thinking we need to react any thoughts
2: yeah yeah so I I wouldn't um you know I might be might be speaking out of turn a little bit on this one but I wouldn't think TaylorMade would be in the business of you know directly taking on a Titleist or or a Callaway, but there are probably um, other discrete facets within the golf industry, um, and maybe outside of the golf industry, that TaylorMade and this company is looking at that they can that that they can possibly um, you know invest in and make and make TaylorMade make TaylorMade um, a bigger a bigger player. So. Um, like I think your stalwarts, the Titleist, the Callaways, I think are there to stay. It's probably more in discreet business lines that you know the 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 normal person going out to play golf every day probably doesn't
1: even realize. Got it. That makes complete sense.
0: Is do you guys think that that this trend that we're discussing and this may, this might seem really out there, powerful companies or mid-sized companies kind of forged together? to is it just because there's le- there's so much data now there's so much uh competition do they feel they need to do that look at look at the correlation in sports especially in the nba all the best players are sort of teaming together there's only three or four teams that really have a shot at winning a championship each year look at streaming services they're buying up each other at record rates and like there's kind of these microcosms of content providers now but not everybody's consuming their content in the same way we used to just watch cable now there's a million options is there is there just a smaller piece of the pie or there's more competition or there's more knowledge more data john i know you're a huge proponent of having all the data is this just something that like we're seeing in the world in general that is just a sign of the times
1: i think business is changing and i would agree and i do think data collection uh, is, is fundamental in some of these big transactions because that is so important, especially on from a club perspective. I would think with Taylor made, you know, the data they have on their customer base who's buying their products would be invaluable uh to other companies. That kind of leads me to to another point here, which you know, I'd like to kind of close out with Jordan and get his opinion on how does a private equity even evaluate a business? I mean, is there data, infrastructure, sales numbers? I mean, how does a private equity set a price point on, you know, a business that's so large with so many facets?
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, in its most basic form, John, it's no different than what you, how you evaluate a club, well, right? So there's a, there's a long due diligence process, and they they look at historical financials, they look at workforce, they look at debt. Um, and And, you know, for global companies, debt is not only, you know, debt that you get from a bank, but debt is also... All the pensions that you owe people around the world. Only in the U.S. is pensions not a thing. Around the world, it is most definitely um, a big part of, of a company, right? So um, they're looking at debt. They're looking at working capital. They're looking at at um, sales, EBITDA results, right? Um, and and they're ev- they're evaluating all those pieces. And and they look at the whole. Okay, what in the industry that Club Car is in? What are what is the approximate you know, value on a multiple basis, um, most commonly um, with EBITDA. What are what are what are those companies um, you know being being purchased for or being being valued at um, through independent studies? And so they they do their best case it back to today, and uh, put a put a multiple on the EBITDA um, and come up with their valuation. I mean, I think valuation for Club Car was 1.7 billion, and and TaylorMade was only. 425 million. So it varies greatly um, in terms of of, of valuation, uh, just dependent upon the complexity and the size of the company.
1: Jordan, I want to thank you for coming on today. It's an impressive run we've had with basically every guest being smarter than us, Jordan. Oh God, Clarkson, that's, right?
0: that's not even hard, but, he, but you actually are quite intelligent. <laughs> I can tell you have an expensive brain.
1: <laughs> we just want to thank you for your input and feedback. Uh, it was great to get your perspective. I know. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. and, And thanks for having me
0: on. All right, John. Well, that was, um, I need a Gatorade or a shot of vodka. Um, but Jordan's awesome. And that was a lot of really good inside knowledge. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, sort of coming out of the pandemic here again, not making, we're not, we don't want to make it sound insensitive and we know there's still people struggling, but Things are relatively getting back to normal here slowly but surely, which means the return of in-person interaction, industry conferences, things of that nature. I know that that was something that you guys did prior to all of this. So what conferences do you plan on attending this year? And let's get a little bit of perspective about what that might actually be like this year coming up.
1: Well, organizations like uh, the PGA of America puts on the PGA show, the NGCOA has multiple conferences. Uh, Golf Inc. Magazine has conferences. And, you know, they've had a tough road. They've had to do virtual conferences. And, you know, I know for myself, I attended the first couple of virtual conferences and then, you know, it kind of died off. It was hard sitting there for multiple hours and getting much out of it. Um, So I'm excited that we're starting to get back to in-person conferences. So Brown Golf and, and Golf Back will attend. You know, right now what we have on our schedule is. We'll be attending the 2021 Golf Inn Conference in September, the National Golf Course Owners Association Multi-Club Operator Conference in November of 2021, and then we'll do the NGCOA Golf Business Conference in January of 2022, hopefully attend the PGA Show, start to get back to normal, start to reconnect, network, learn about our business, learn about what's successful for golf course owners and operators, and, and really just share information
0: have you had any meaningful transactions or relationships made at any of these conferences in the past?
1: Absolutely. Without a doubt. You know, being able to sit down, uh, look somebody in the eye, talk about the business, and then develop a friendship after the fact. Um, Without a doubt, uh, you know, folks that I talked to throughout the pandemic, a lot of them I met at different conferences. It's an opportunity, at least this year for Golfback, we're actually presenting at two of the conferences. So we'll be able to share uh, some of the success stories about Um, what we've experienced with the operators and owners we've worked with. And yes, they're invaluable from that perspective.
0: I think we talk a lot about the virtual existence in all business and how important it is moving forward, but there is nothing to this day more effective in my opinion than actually talking to a real life human being and, even if it's not making money together right away, it's just sharing industry knowledge. Now, do you find that people are forthcoming with information? Because I know you're sort of all competition, but it's all the same community. So are people willing to sort of share trade secrets?
1: I can tell you the ones that are more forthcoming and open and transparent are the ones I connect with because that's how I'm wired. Uh, the ones that are a little bit more guarded, I always think if you're not you know, willing to share with other folks in the industry you know, how you're conducting business, is there is there a reason why not? So, you know, for me, my connections have always uh, developed when I've had those open conversations, you know, great information at these conferences, great opportunities to meet, to network. There's even some fun. There's usually some golf. You develop a different kind of chemistry in that environment, something that you can take uh, you know, throughout the year and throughout years in this business.
0: Do you expect any backlash? from? Because you've never sh- shied away from sharing your opinion, your perspective, and even trading some very valuable insider knowledge. So You know, people who attend these conferences may be familiar with this show or season one. Do you expect any backlash from an article you've written or anything you've said?
1: I hope. I hope we have the opportunity for those articles. You know, I believe uh, what we've put out there publicly from a golf back perspective and a Brown golf perspective is all rooted in, in one fundamental, which is what is the right decision for the golf course owner? If that is happening, the industry as a whole is better. So, you know, does that mean that, you know, some of the information or some of my thought processes might not align with other people in the industry because they've been making a lot of money, you know, off golf course owners for years to come or for years past? Uh, that may happen. I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. At the end of the day, you know, I've sat in that golf course owner seat. I've paid the real estate taxes. I understand the agronomy uh, impacts. I understand how hard it is to hire uh, great people. I understand how hard it is to keep great people and pay them uh, what they should be paid to do a great job for you. And, you know, those are all areas that are important to continue to build a great business so that you can support. So I'm comfortable with all the information that we've presented.
0: Well, you know, every time, anytime, I'm sure there's other companies too. And the proof is in the pudding here. I mean, just look at the testimonials on the golf back and Brown golf websites that we have coming out. But a lot of people probably say they have the course owner operator in mind, but anytime you mess with their gravy train, you're kind of pissing in their cereal. So I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody says feels a certain way, but I don't know that they'll actually bring it up to you in person.
1: I don't think it'll ever be public. I do think there'll be some underlying feelings as it relates to that. Obviously been strong with my uh, thoughts on, you know, golf now as a business and I've been strong on my thoughts on some of the larger management companies. And I don't, begrudge the business they've built for themselves i think they're great businesses the reality is though i don't know if they're the best decisions for golf course owners so i purely come from that perspective
0: all right well let's talk a little bit about what brown golf's been doing lately what have you guys been up to we obviously know that you're always looking to move forward always looking to innovate do what's best for the courses that you currently have in the portfolio but you're always looking to expand as well so have you been checking out any new properties do you have anything in the pipeline that you can share well, we've added two new properties in 2021.
1: One was a full management deal uh, in Minnesota, our eighth state called Minnesota National. Very exciting uh, to be in the great state of Minnesota now. Uh, that deal started. The weather's turning. It's May 18th today. And I think, you know, we'll see that business pick up as the weather continues to get nice in Minnesota. And we're excited to see what uh golf back helps them produce uh there um installed a club caddy point of sales system there which we're excited to continue to work with club caddy and i think the ownership group there is excited about that as well Uh, we also entered into a uh, accounting management platform with a Carlisle Country Club, a local club in Central PA here, uh, which we're excited about that relationship. And we continue to look for the right partners uh, to add, whether from a consulting management or accounting management standpoint. We're really excited about uh, diving into the market uh, as far as what's for sale. I've had a lot of great conversations, uh, making some serious traction on one particular purchase potential. Um, right now, I would say it's uh, it's in waiting. So can't r- clearly communicate what that is. But um, we're being aggressive with looking at properties that are for sale as well.
0: So when you look at a property, someone in my shoes would say, well, they probably want a club that's making a ton of money so they can add it to their portfolio so it's automatically successful. But that might not actually make the most sense. Maybe you want one that's you feel like you can turn around. What do you actually look for? when you are looking to acquire a club or work with the club
1: we look for a minimum number of revenues so on 18 holes we'd like to see 1.6 million dollars of total revenues if we could see an allocation of those revenues being split uh you know 70% golf revenues to 30% food and beverage revenues uh you know that's something that we like to see there's a current management company in place obviously there's value there for us if they are currently trading tea times for any services at the club we see tremendous value there uh, those are kind of the main thresholds we're looking for and then you know we look you, there's really two ways we buy clubs we buy them at, uh, off of their total revenue number so we might buy a club for anywhere from 0.8 to 1.6 times the total revenue number or we'll look at uh, their NOI number, net operating income number. We might buy a club for six to nine times the NOI number, depending on you know how we feel about the location, the foundation, is there deferred maintenance. Uh, you know, what is the geographic area? What's the demographics around that club? There's a lot of factors to weigh. Are they in a transitional zone where agronomy budgets need to be higher? Or, you know, are they in a zone where maybe you can spend a little bit less but still produce quality conditions? So there's a lot of inputs. But at the end of the day, we do believe strongly you need at least baseline revenues of $1.6 on 18 holes, uh, you know, to be able to self-sustain a golf
0: course. Well, I think that we all agree that all of that is very exciting, but we're all very excited about Golfback as well. And when I first came on board here, that was – it's still very new in relative terms, but I'm sure you probably feel like you've been doing it for a long time because it does take so much legwork and groundwork to lay that foundation. So let's talk about Golfback. What's what's the latest and greatest news and updates and things like that? We talked about the website. It looks awesome. What has been going on? Continued growth. Uh, like-minded operators
1: who are looking for a solution – That's rooted in our core principles, which, you know, obviously you know them and I know them, but they're, you own all your data, you own a hundred percent of your green and car fee revenue, you own your lowest price in the market, and you own that direct relationship with your customer. If you believe in those core principles, uh, which a lot of our new clubs obviously uh, did, um, then you start to look at the platform. You start to realize that it's a solution that, you know, we place on a golf courses website. It's branded to the club. You know, it's a data collecting machine for them. It's an automated marketing machine. The dynamic pricing tools uh, take over and they make more profits. And, you know, it's just creating some really impressive case studies for our customers. Obviously, you mentioned testimonials earlier, which are up on our website. Uh, But we're up to 36 golf courses on the Golfback platform. Uh, Not bad for a company that uh, really launched in January of this year. Uh, We actually installed our first golf back platform back in October within our own portfolio, and uh, and we've been able to install it at all of our Brown Golf portfolios, which was uh, 17 of our 21 locations uh, because we had a couple clubs that are just accounting management and private clubs. So 17 of our locations, and then uh, we're, we've, we're a total of 36 facilities. So it's been going well, and the conversations have been exciting.
0: Now, I, I got the opportunity to talk to some of the owner-operators or, or just people who were in charge at the club of installing the golf back engine, and they couldn't be happier with the results. The testimonials are there on the site again. And I mean, they couldn't have given better testimonials if I paid them to say something, which I did not. Um, I just asked them, tangi- like, I asked them uh, to give candid responses, and they came out with what they came out with. It's, it's right there, it didn't cut any of the audio, nothing like that. So when you go to these people initially, Um, Or when you've been working with them, what metrics or what tangible things do you actually show them and say, here's what this could do for you? Or once you have the relationship established, how do you articulate to them that it's working? Obviously, they see it on the bottom line. But, I mean, how do you actually communicate to them that it's being effective? The number one thing that I always make sure that our golf course
1: owners and operators understand, is that your green and card fee total revenues dictate whether you're in a good relationship or not, right? So yes, we're pushing online rounds, we're giving them collection of data, we're giving them unique automated tools, dynamic pricing, that's all great. But are their green and car fee revenues growing? And, you know, that's the number one line. So everybody looks at the green and car fee revenues. Are they growing? At the end of the month, we then provide very detailed reports about booking engine stats, website, summary stats, uh, conversion rates, uh, what's happening with their database, how how many times are automated emails being clicked on. I mean, the, the amount of data they receive each month uh, it is a source of information which can be overwhelming. However, we define out sort of all the data points in a nice description within the report, and then we'll help them dial into some of the key areas to help them improve their business and ultimately improve their bottom line. So the reality of you know a relationship with Golfback is, what are we doing? to try to achieve a better bottom line. That's all I care about, you know? And that was the focus when we built Golfback. It was the focus of me as a golf course owner and operator and someone who's vested in the bottom line cash flow. The stats are tremendous. At the end of the day, I want all of our golf course operators and owners who work with Golfback to be growing their databases and their green and car fee revenue.
0: How can Golfback continue to grow, evolve, adapt, What have you learned about it? It's still in its embryonic stages, so I know it's still brand new, but I know that you and your team are gonna do everything you can to constantly improve it. And you're gonna talk to the course owners and operators. You're gonna ask them what they would like to see. I I know that firsthand, I've talked to guys about that. So how do you see it growing, evolving, and what have you learned so far?
1: We're gonna continue to add innovations to the tool. Everything that we've built to date has been built from a golf course owner and operator's perspective. We love working with new clubs, getting new feedback about, you know, what they'd like to see within the platform that we can improve. You know, our priority list for development uh, is the same size every month, but it's different every month. So we continue to add new tools get information from uh, our clients we work with and build in the tools they want to see. I mean, we have a very particular client we're working with. Actually, that's the first one uh, that's out of our country that had a very unique set of requests because of the way they book tea times early, more than 10 days out. And we've built that functionality for them. So we can be a very customized solution. So I think uh, the possibilities uh, to continue to meet the needs of golf course owners and develop exactly what they're looking for are something that are gonna be core values of Golfback moving forward. What I've learned is once the data machine starts, it absolutely collects with a head of steam. And what I mean by that is when you're checking people in at the point of sales, entry point in the pro shop and that data flows up to your email crm tool when people are booking online tee times and that flows into your email crm tool when people are filling out website inquiries for membership or events and that flows into your crm tool and you get all that data collection and you're not exposing your customer base to third parties and you collect all that data you're going to grow at two three four five percent a month your database. And then from there, you know, the possibilities are endless once you have that foundational database.
0: So with all that positive thing that you with everything that we just talked about, all positives, there's got to be some setbacks or some challenges that you've encountered. One thing that came to my mind immediately, maybe you can dispel this myth. I feel like somebody is with a ton of money to throw at it is going to try to make their cheap knockoff version of this. Is there any way to protect yourself fully from that?
1: if you're rooted in those core principles and you build the same tool, good for you. Because honestly, at the end of the day, if all golf courses move to a direct booking platform whether it's GolfBack or some other platform, it's good for the industry. So, uh you know, I think we're the first to the game. I think we've got a head start. Uh I think we've got a huge desire to continue to evolve, evolve our tool and uh so I do think that GolfBack's here to stay. Um but I would never oppose anyone rooting the right fundamentals to enter this space because it's good for the industry. You know, our challenges that exist today are more about point of sales companies and who is willing to integrate with Golfback. You know, we have three cloud-based companies that we integrate with right now, Club Caddy, uh, Lightspeed, and 4Up has committed to also doing those integrations with us. And, you know, more power to those companies for taking uh, the viewpoint that, you know, they should have open systems. There's other companies out there that uh, don't have that viewpoint that require contracts uh, to work with them, detrimental contracts. Um, there's companies that won't even allow you that access. And uh, that, unfortunately, is just the nature of our business. So you really need to talk to everyone you can when you're evaluating your technology options. When you think about online tea times, um, talk to folks who are using the products uh, make sure you understand any contracts and agreements you're into. But I'll make it really simple. If you don't have a 30 day out in your agreement, then start questioning it, you know, because you should have that opportunity. Nobody that is a golf bag customer customer stuck in a contract. If they aren't happy waking up saying I want to work with golf bag, they can be out of the contract tomorrow.
0: You know how as you get older and a little more wiser, you kind of start to realize that like politicians are mostly full of crap. Aren't, I mean, people that are in the know in this business, I mean, who aren't maybe there yet, aren't they going to eventually come around to this way of thinking and realize that it's just in their best interest?
1: We only have 36 clubs on the platform so far. So we're so small that we're not making that uh, necessary impact yet, but it's going to happen. The case studies that we've uh, put together so far that are showing that are advancing profitability lines for our owners and operators, that word will spread, you know, owners and operators talk to owners and operators. And, you know, I'm excited when that, uh, depth in the market, uh, takes place, you know, companies like, you know, golf now, Supreme, maybe some of the point of sales companies that currently won't integrate, um, You know, they'll start to open their eyes that if we want to work with this segment of the market, then we need to understand what's important uh, to them. And to me, it's those principles of who owns the data, who owns the lowest price, ensuring you collect 100 percent of your green and car fee revenue, ensuring that you have protection of the direct marketing relationship. There will be a group of this market that says, you know, these are non-negotiables. And when we get large enough, it'll change the industry.
0: Well, getting large enough would be a great problem to have. So um, we're here for it. Season two. We are very excited and it's only going to be onward and upward from here. So by all means, please download the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just go right to browngolfmanagement.com, golfbacksolutions.net. Check out, peruse the whole website. Check out the new updated Golfback website and you can listen to the podcast directly on there. So, John, very excited about season two. Um, Another great episode, a lot to digest here and a lot to unpack, but we're here for it. So thank you. Thank you.